for joining me for episode 8, where we continue this series with Dr. Dub Ashton to discuss how he has led his education, career, and life throughout his many years as a legend in the marketing department at the University of Arkansas. First off, can you introduce yourself and your position at the University of Arkansas? Sure, I'd be glad to, Allison. Uh, I am Dub Ashton, no middle name. Uh, I am uh, Associate Professor of Marketing in the Walton College of Business. I have served here as the Chairman of this department, Associate Dean for Graduate Studies, and the Senior Associate Dean of the College as well, too, uh, through the development of the college since uh, the 19, mid-1990s. Um, been here for 37 years, probably my last semester, uh, but I've been here for 37 years and absolutely love what I do here. That's awesome. So since this season is about transitions, I'd like to go back to your first big transition. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell me what it was like for you to move from high school to college? Actually, it wasn't really a big deal for me because I went to a school at the time, which was a, it was taught as if it were a college prep school. It was a county school, but everyone had to have a master's degree to teach there. And that was back in the 60s. So I had learned to study. I think that was the issue. So I really had learned to study. So I had received a scholarship to go to University of Mississippi Ole Miss. But my fiance, who wasn't my fiance at the time, was going to stay in Memphis. So I decided to stay at the University of Memphis, which at that time was called Memphis State, which was also called Tiger High. Because mm -hmm. that's where people went to. Um, I found that I had a lot more freedom. Uh, I had a scholarship there also to pay tuition. And uh, I found that integrating there was uh, really quite easy. The most difficult thing there is what we have here, finding parking places. It was really, <laughs> really hard to be able to do that. But I enjoyed college a lot. Um, I was a good student in high school. I, I failed the eighth grade, so I wasn't a good student in the eighth grade. But I got a social promotion to play basketball. In ninth, tenth, and eleventh, and twelfth grade, uh, were were pretty straightforward for me. But I learned an important consideration. Number one is I learned how to manage my time, and number two, I learned how to study based on what a teacher would tell you in class. Those two things fed into the university, especially in the freshman year, so much. So that transition wasn't real hard. What was difficult for me in a transition is I took seven courses a semester, twenty-one hours a semester, and finished in less than three years. But in order for me to be able to do the things I needed to do, I also had to work while I went through school. So I had an employment position, I had an academic position, and then there's a social position also that has to go through that entire period of time as well, too. But would I do it again? Actually, it's fun. And you said you had a fiancé at the time as well? Well, not quite at that time, mm -hmm. but it was pretty well determined. I met my, uh, my daughter's mother, my first wife, in high school. And we got married when we finished our master's degrees. Okay. So it's still a lot to juggle during yeah, that time. Yeah, it was. Um, so what did, what did you first major in in college? And did you change your major? Or? Yeah, I did. Uh, I, you have to go back to high school for that. I majored, majored in uh, science, math, and language. Uh, I was really interested in science. I've always been a good mathematician. And I was really excited about learning a foreign language, which was Spanish. Now, you're looking back 50 years, mm -hmm. you know, 55, 60 years. That's a long time ago. So when I went to college, I wanted to, be a, I wanted to be a medical student. And my mother was a registered nurse. I'd been around medicine a lot. And that's what I wanted to do. So I got into my freshman year and uh, liked what I was doing. But I, I knew that I could not work the hours that I was working and be in a medical program. So my second semester, I changed 
to uh, pre-law in the business college and stayed there, went through pre-law all the way through the business college. But in my second semester of my sophomore year, I took a course called marketing and I really liked it. I had a really good teacher. I took a course called macroeconomics from uh, a teacher by the name of Van Oliphant. Now that's a long time ago. That's 50 years ago. Mm. This guy was super, guy that you want to imitate. And um, I like marketing. I also took a real estate class from a guy by the name of John Edgar, who was absolutely terrific for model and quality of teaching. So within the pre-law program, I actually had two majors. I had a major in retail marketing, and I had a re major in, uh, in real estate, where I got my real estate license. So I really liked being there. But then I got my master's degree after that. Okay. And so you said that you worked while you were in college, mm -hmm. but did you do any clubs? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I wasn't in a in a, uh, a Greek fraternity. They took too much time and too much money, and I didn't have either one of those. Uh, I was in the American Marketing Association, where I was president of the American Marketing Association. I was president of Pi Sigma Epsilon, which is a national sales marketing fraternity, supported by Sales and Marketing Executives International. Um, I did some tutoring uh, for people in math and tutoring in uh, microeconomics. Uh, but mostly I went to school, I studied, I took seven courses a semester every semester that I was in school except for summers and you can only take uh, 14 hours in the summer so I took four courses and two PE courses in the summertime to be able to do what I was, what I was trying to be able to do. When I finished undergraduate school I, I uh, applied to several schools and got admitted to Virginia to law school but the Vietnam War was running then that kind of distracted me a little bit. So I went to work in retail and loved it yeah. and then I had an experience, a really terrific experience. I was asked to teach a course because I had my master's degree. Charles Spindler, the chairman of the department, asked me if I would teach a course for Waylon Tonning, who was ill. I thought I would have 40 people in the class. We were 283 people in that class. Mm -hmm. And so I was really, really intimidated. And I felt like, you know, just to be able to get there and keep their attention was important. So I didn't try to learn their names at all. In November of that year, I had a young lady commit suicide that was in the class. And I still feel today that if I had known Nancy's name, maybe she might have come and talked to me. So students will tell you now, he knows everybody in this class, or he knows everybody in this college. I went to visit the parents of Nancy after the suicide, after the funeral. And I remember going to the door and they said, I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm in retail right now. But whatever I do, I'll make sure I do the best to prevent this tragedy from happening to any other family. And I've done that, you know, since 1968 or 69. So I went back, I worked for Sears. I love Sears. Really enjoyed my work with Sears. I only interviewed for two companies, mm. Sears and JCPenney's. It was the only two that I wanted to be with. I took the job at Sears. But after I taught, I resigned from Sears six months later and wrote to 179 schools to see if I could find a teaching job, just to see if I'd like it for two years. I got 11 job offers, which was amazing. Uh, highest paid uh, offer was $8,800 a year. Uh, my first job at Sears was $6,500 a year. And I went to Drake University and I knew after the first semester I really wanted to do this. So that means for me, I had to go back and get my doctorate degree to be able to do that. And I went back to the University of Georgia. And then I became a faculty member at Georgia. And uh, it just grew beyond there. That's awesome. So how exactly do you think you know, besides being distracted by the Vietnam War and um, deciding, you know, you didn't really want to do medical field, how exactly did you 
go into this marketing field? Well, first of all, I, I really didn't decide that I didn't want to go to the medical field. Mm. It's the situation didn't allow it. I'd still like to be an emergency room surgeon today. You wouldn't like me to work with <laughs> but I would still like to be able to do that. For the law part, let me add that into is I actually do expert testimony in federal courts now across the United States. Okay. And I've done that since 1979, and my particular uh, law that I work with is the Lanham Act of 1946, which is trademark legislation. So I still work with lawyers who don't understand marketing or the business, and they're the lawyers, but I, you know, I... I know this law so I can communicate with this law real well. So I'm still doing the legal part. I just don't have legal clients as such. But as an expert witness, I, I, I'm a consultant for them primarily. And then I'm, I have to testify in federal courts. So my orientation toward, I, I think I explained toward teaching. And, you know, I, when I went to Iowa to teach at Drake University, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but in 1970, Kent State Massacre occurred with the Vietnam War situation. And I remember sitting out under the elm trees on campus, talking to groups of students at a time, most of them not much younger than I am, and realized that there's credibility in what you have to say and, and that you have to collaborate with people to get people to at least consider your point of view. I found that to be very, very invigorating for me. And um, so uh, Paul Sharp, who was the president there, asked me to go to Iowa State, get my degree at Iowa State. So I tried that. You can't teach four courses, have a pregnant wife, run, a, run the uh, Business and Economic Research Center, and take even two courses in the doctoral program. So I dropped out of the doctoral program, but gave him my resignation. So in January, pardon me, in uh, August of 1970, I went to Athens, Georgia, to the University of Georgia. I was there three years as a student, one year as a faculty member, and then went to uh, Eastern Michigan University, uh, where I became the chairman of that department. Stayed there only one year, too cold, people too unfriendly. And University of Florida offered me a position in the Center for Consumer Research. I went there uh, as a visitor, visiting assistant professor, loved what I did there. Uh, met my current wife there, Sandy, and uh, moved from there. I was offered another position at Virginia, but I like to ski, so I went to the University of Denver's Graduate School of Business. Stayed there four years and then came here. So that's kind of the history of what I've done. Okay. Why marketing? I felt like marketing was one of those universal uh, uh, disciplines that touches everybody's life, no matter where they live on the face of the earth, or in the intergalactic area, you know, if you believe in Sheldon Cooper which I do, and uh, I thought that marketing, uh, I was really fascinated with market research. I really liked the market research capacity. I was really fascinated with um, identifying and solving problems, but the thing I liked most of all was writing prescriptions or marketing plans on mm -hmm. how to be able to do that. Uh, I had originally looked at management as an area, but I, you know, even though the social science backgrounds and behavioral sciences I really liked a lot, I thought I had more power in the marketing area. So I chose marketing as my major. My minor was quantitative analysis. So that's what my doctorate degree is in. Uh, I used to teach statistics in my courses. In, in different schools I've taught some statistics. Here I don't do that, but I use statistics in my graduate courses and my undergraduate market research course. So I'd like to go back to school now and get a PhD in math. Yeah. It's too old to do that. <laughs> um, 
so going back to those first jobs at Sears, and I mean, you put in an application at JCPenney, as you said, mm-hmm. um, and then later you went in and tried to get a teaching job. So how did you prepare yourself for those first interviews? Well, you have to realize that 50 years ago, we didn't have the internet. So I found out from a guy named F.O. Larrabee, who was my business law teacher, there was this wonderful document that was a federal document with the Security and Exchange Commission called the 10K Report. Most people don't ever think about that. They think in terms of the annual report, which is really a PR piece. Um, But the 10K Report starts with when a company began to where it is today and expanded 10 years out from that. So you can kind of see where they were going. But all the critical parts of the development of companies are in the 10K report. So I got 10K reports, and I virtually memorized those reports. So when the conversation came up, I could talk about them. Uh, I had always been a, a customer of Sears as a child, because that's where my parents shopped for me. J.C. Penney's was known for its um, work clothing. It made the best work clothing in the marketplace. But looking at both of those uh, and having offers from both companies, I felt like the future was within Sears and fashion, and I really liked fashion an awful lot. Uh, I felt like J.C. Penney's. At the time, J. Cash Penney was still alive, and J. Cash Penney, any decision over $300 he had to make, and I didn't want that. I wanted something else. And so uh, I got some opportunities. It worked out real well. I went through a nine-month training program. I went through all the divisions of the company. And then I got to pick where I started, and where I started was in uh, Division 33, which is men's furnishings. And I really liked the inventory part. I really liked the human resource part, because I had to hire college students to work for me. I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, I enjoyed the training part. There were so many things that had management in it, management leadership, and had marketing in it. Display, visual, visual merchandising, I really enjoyed that. I mean, there wasn't anything I didn't enjoy. The problem, or the benefit for me, the opportunity is once I taught this course in marketing, I had a good time with it, but I felt like my calling was beyond just the textbook. And so I felt like I couldn't lose by taking two years off and trying something else. And so I did. And when I tried something else, I found out that I really, I really liked that. And so, you know, this, I've been here 37 years. Mm-hmm. It's a long time. But I've taught at seven schools. But I've been here 37 years. It's a long time. And this is probably my last semester to teach here because I'm ill. But um, if they would let me teach here five more years, and they will, I just don't think I'm prepared to do that. I would stay here. Um. So what do you recommend for people when they're interviewing? I mean, now we we have the internet, so I know I've done research, I've looked up stuff, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of how I prep, but how do you, what what is your recommendation for when we have to meet face-to-face? You have to communicate and talk to someone. I understand that, Allison. What I believe, first of all, is you have to know yourself. What's important to you? You know, there are characteristics that you have that some are strong and some are weak. Do the type of jobs you want, do you have the strengths or do you have the weaknesses of that particular job? I, For myself, and I tell this to students all the time, who are you? What's important to you? What are the characteristics that you think that are important? What attributes of a company would you be looking for that would allow you to benefit from those characteristics so you would have a benefit orientation? Functionally, everybody wants a job. Functionally, everybody wants a high income. But there's a behavioral and an emotional orientation to a job of whether or not you can dance with the job, so to speak. 
So how you feel about what you work with and, and how you get reinforced from the people that you work with, I think you have to assess what that's important. And then what I believe is important is that in the interview process, you have to be able to talk on your feet. You can't do a memorized presentation, but it has to be an organized presentation. So knowing about the company where they may ask you, what do you know about the company? Having three things that you can say about the company that are important. The 10K will give you all of those. You don't have to go and dig for those. Um, they always seem to ask you what motivates you. So you have to kind of know yourself in terms of, of, of who motivates you. What I believe you have to do when you go in there is you're there for 30 minutes to be interviewed. I think you have to reverse that and interview them. So there are three questions that I like to ask, and I emphasize that to our students, to our freshmen as well. Number one, can you please describe your training program to me? You know, a lot of situations you go in, there's no training program, and you just kind of have to learn by the seat of your pants. A company that's real serious about a career path for you is going to train you. And I try to emphasize, as I did myself, to our students, in a class of marketing or in a major of marketing, you have generic marketing. All companies change that generic orientation to a color palette that works with them. You have to understand their color palette. But because you have a background in the language, you can understand it much more quickly of what they're trying to do. I think that's number one. I think number two that's really important for success is during this training period. Now, I had one for nine months. Sometimes they're only three months. But in this training period, can you tell me who I'll be working with? And they usually ask, why? Well, I believe that you can learn through observation and osmosis. So if I'm working with people who, have, who are admired for their decision-making opportunities, then I can learn from those decision-making opportunities how they're made in an admirable type of way. And the third thing, most people say they want to be promoted. I don't think that's something you should say. I think you should say something of the nature that I'm going to suggest to you. Because uh, the third thing is I want to aspire to positions of leadership authority. Everybody wants to get promoted. Then they ask you, well, why would you say that? And the response is, I'd like to lead this company someday or lead some division of this particular company. And so if I can aspire to those positions, I can learn how to be in those positions. Many interviewers, and I've done this for Sears, come back and say, well, the person wants a job, they want an income, and they want to make more money without doing a whole lot for it. And I think these three things say, I've thought through this process. I know that I need training because I don't know everything. I'm not an accountant. You know, I don't know everything that's there. Um, I uh, would like to interact with people who I can learn from while I'm in the training program. And in my career path, I'd like to be able to aspire to those roles of leadership. And then they usually ask, well, how long do you think that should take? And I said, three to five years. And that's legitimate. You know, if you say six months, you're not legitimate with that at all. So... Um, and the income is not the most important thing. It's really the opportunity through that income that makes them. As I told you, my first job was $6,500 a year. Do you realize it's five, $525 a month? Yeah. A month? You know, I make a little bit more than that now here at the university. <laughs> and so in your your day-to-day -day life, um, how did you find space to, you know, be mentally healthy, to have, you know, enough time to sleep and eat and spend time with your family but still, you know, consult and work for a college and balance all of that? I like that question because the question comes down to the same thing that I did when I was 11 years old when I started my first business. And I found out that you have to have priorities. You have to figure out what's important and what's not so important. And so as I grew older, I found out that uh, the most important thing to me in my life is my family. That's number one with me. 
Number two is my health. I have many friends that say your health ought to be number one, family ought to be number two. I understand that, but my family is the most important thing to me. My health is important because I can't do the other things I have to do. And then comes my work here at the university or whatever university I'm at. Within that category, we have other categories of work too. Uh, we have uh, administration, which I've been a large part of this university in 37 years. We have teaching or instruction, which I think is the most important part of what we do. And then we also have research. Uh, and at a point in my life, that was very important to me. I moved back to administration and instruction to being more important and research being of lesser importance. And so I'm not current at all in my research work. But I like to experiment with things in the instruction that excite people and help them to learn in different types of ways. So my concept that I have in my own case, Allison, is what, um, what value do I add? Where's the value? Well, we have people like Scott Burton, who's probably the best researcher in the college. We had Betsy Hallett, who's absolutely excellent. Steve Kopp, who's absolutely excellent. Jeff Murray is absolutely excellent. Uh, Ron Smith, absolutely excellent. And then, you know, we still have me as a, as, a, as a teacher who always tries for excellence there. So everybody can't be excellent in everything. So to compete with them would mean I'd have to reduce the number of students I actually teach, too. And I think I do better by teaching the largest, larger numbers of students. And I like that. I like to experiment with new ways of learning for students. And I've been doing that for quite a while. And feedback must, must be working for us uh, pretty good overall. But my family's a priority for me. When it comes to consulting work, or in most of its legal work now, I don't take most of it that comes to me. I take something that might be of interest that I can learn from, and I can take it back to the students in the classroom. They can actually learn from that process as well, too. So I turn down now far more opportunities than I accept. And as you are aware, I'm, I'm ill. I don't really have the strength to do that much anymore. So, but I guess like all of us who get old, we have great memories. Some of them are always accurate. Yeah. I have these great memories about, about the past and I'd like to keep doing it. I just don't have the strength to be able to do it. Yeah. Well, and I know I, just from taking your class, you talk about your wife a lot. Mm -hmm. It's obvious that you love and care about her and cherish your time together. And I, I know that, you know, you guys, she she loves Diet Coke. You know my wife. Right? Huh? I remember that. But it's caffeine-free. Caffeine-free Diet Coke, yeah. And uh, I know that you guys always make time to go out to eat. Five times a week. Five times a week. But so. always have a movie on Saturdays. Yeah. So you have, you, you know, you designate very specific time for your family, mm -hmm. for her. Well, she just got back from being gone 10 weeks. Oh, my. She was taking care of her mother in Waycross, Georgia, who is a dementia patient. Mm. And she just got back Sunday night at 11 o'clock. The hurricane that came through uh, Irma closed down the airport in Jacksonville, so she couldn't get out when she normally had to get out. So she had to come a week later. But, you know, she's been here for three days, and we really haven't seen each other in three days because I've had so many commitments here. wasn't really sure when she was going to get back. But I will absolutely guarantee you that tonight, that commitment will begin again because she isn't going to fix dinner. We're going to go out to dinner. Yeah. <laughs> She'll tell me that overall. But I have two children, too. I have a son who, is, who lives in Waycross, Georgia. Uh, he has two children and a, and a granddaughter, so I have a great-granddaughter. Uh, I have a daughter who lives in, uh, she did live in Hollywood. She now lives in Culver City, California. She has her own business. It's an interior design business. She has a degree from uh, University of Florida in uh, architecture and construction management. And so she got into interior design and got on television and made her well-known, and so she's doing that kind of thing. But I have a granddaughter 
this one who just turned 14 last <laughs> week. And I have a great granddaughter here who's six years old. And they are wonderful. I just can't, I'm not, I'm not encouraged to fly now because of my health. So I can't see them unless I drive down there. But I think the priority of my family is really, really important for us. But um, the work that I do here at the university is creating value for other people. I'm more concerned, when you were in our class, I'm more concerned of how you're going to use this information than how you could actually do on an examination. So, you know, having language in a class is an important part of being able to communicate quickly and efficiently. Being able to use that language is like having a whole bunch of tools in a toolbox and you know what a, a normal screwdriver is, a standard screwdriver, and you don't know how to use any of the rest of the stuff. The toolbox isn't any good for you. So by telling vignettes and giving vignettes with people, they tend to see those more so. And when they write their evaluations, they said, you know, he tells these, they call them stories. They're not really that at all. He tells these stories that help us to be able to see something. And so my belief is, is that most people see with their ears in a classroom. But you have five senses. So if you can find a way to integrate those five senses into a class, you have a much better chance of helping them with an outcome of application and understanding, not just a memory for the moment. Mm -hmm. I tried an experiment today in my class. Some of the material that was in your class, I made that into a review film, a video. The slides, a three-minute slide put to the music of a street artist in San Diego, California, and there are the, 27 of the key slides they have to have for an exam on Monday. And they all watch the slides because of the music there, too. I don't know if this is going to work, but I've never tried it before. And I'm always trying things of that nature, and, 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 I, and I like that. It's the same thing with working with Freshman Business Connections last year. It was a chance to design that entire program and work with that program and experiment with things that might work with people who are 18 years old. And I learned a lot from that program, and I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I remember um, just from my psychology course that I took my very freshman year, um, those little things, songs, mm -hmm. while you're studying, continue to listen to the same songs, mm -hmm. and then when you're taking the exam, think about that song. Correct. Um, if you're chewing mint gum, make sure during the exam you chew mint gum. Um, if you sit in the same place, try to sit in that place when you take the test. It's extrapolating a routine. Mm -hmm. I used to tell my students, I try to recreate the environment in the classroom that you have when you study. So if you're drinking beer and eating pizza and smoking, I can't do the beer and the pizza, I mean the, the beer and the smoke, but I can do the pizza for you if that helps out. And it's true, you recreate the routine, the routine helps you. My son has dyslexia, and I learned when he was eight years old that he could remember music, but he couldn't spell. And so I designed a program for him at our house. I used to play guitar. And we would do his spelling words to music. I'd say, okay, now, with this standard music consideration, when you have your spelling, tap your foot to the music and think of the music. And he went from Fs to As. That's amazing. Just amazing to me. Just amazing to me. I hope you have enjoyed our talk so far with Dr. Ashton. Next week, we pick back up our discussion and move on from his interview tips to how to humbly grow your professional career. In the meantime, you can come by and chat with us at the BCL, located in WCOB 118.